Welcome to The Power of Rhythm, a podcast with your host, Reinhard Flatischler, around the one thing that connects us all. Rhythm. Hi, and welcome to episode 35 of my podcast. My guest today is a musician with an unusual background and a very interesting approach in the realm of music education and performance. He's a senior teacher at the Conservatorium van Amsterdam, and he studied extensively the Indian Carnatic music. And with this knowledge, he developed the program Contemporary Music Through Non-Western Techniques. He composed three operas and many more music pieces, all focused on percussion. He also co-founded two groups, the Interval Chamber Amsterdam and the Axis Ensemble. Finally, he graduated from the Berkeley College of Music in Boston in composition summa cum laude, and he completed a PhD at the University of Brunel in London, Welcome, Raphael Reina. Thank you, Reinhard. It's a pleasure to meet you finally and to learn about these many things. Now, uh, you have several aspects, obviously. Uh, one is you are a teacher and educator. You are a composer, obviously, and you have been researching a lot of stuff in India. So let's start from the very beginning. You've been uh, born in Equatorial Guinea, right? and then came to Spain. So what was your first encounter with music? Well, that's a, it's a very good question because I think that my first encounter with music is actually what I think has determined the course of my life, musically speaking. Um, so as you said, I was born in a former Spanish colony uh, in Africa that was it used to be called Spanish Guinea and it's Cotero yeah. Guinea since 1968. And actually, my father uh, was a, a strange character because he wasn't really someone who knew a lot about music or was a, uh, a melomaniac or anything like that. But uh, he, he had one of those old CIA kind of tape players you know, what is called real to real in English. And he had a, a variety of uh, music cultures that was quite flabbergasting. So uh, he loved a lot of African music. Mm -hmm. So a lot of tapes of African chanting or drumming. But my father was from the south of Spain at the same time. So he had a lot of flamenco. And But for some reasons that I never understood, he loved Stravinsky and Bela Bartok. So he had uh, quite a lot of music by Stravinsky and Bela Bartok, even some bares. And actually, my very first memory, I must have been, must have been two or so, it was uh, just seeing a really heavy storm coming, like, you know, like the cloud, the, the, the sky covering these completely black clouds and you could see the lightning and, and, and the, the raindrops as big as my hand. And my father just had this idea of blasting 
the ride of the spring in the speakers. So <laughs> that really, really scared. And I remember just going under my bed there. But then just after a couple of minutes, I got out. And then I was watching this amazing tropical spectacle of lightning and different colors in clouds and, and the power of nature together with the ride of the spring. So for me, the ride of the spring always reminds me of a tropical storm. <laughs> so, you know, so that is kind of somehow in a conscious or unconscious way has guided who I am musically as a teacher, uh, as a composer, as a founder of uh, different ensembles. Uh, what I always wanted to do is, is just talk about music for me to talk about this music belongs to this culture or to that culture, something I never understood, I still don't understand it. So uh, for me, it's like, okay, you know, all this is music done everywhere and we can just like take and, and do whatever we want with it. Okay, now uh, this is a very intense music experience with Stravinsky and Lissander Sturm, and very unusual also. And then you came to Spain. How does this lead to South India? Well, it's, it's a long way in between. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, I came to Spain and I started studying music when I was 13. Uh, so, yeah, I like... I like jazz. I was into jazz. Um, I still listen to Stravinsky and Bela Bartok and Sambares, some Messian. But I was more interested uh, at the time, things like King Crimson or Weather Report or, um, he, yeah, I don't know, Art Ensemble of Chicago, uh, Archie Ship. Mm -hmm. uh, I, was, I was really interested in, in a lot of jazz. But I wasn't really interested in classical jazz. I was interested more in what it used to be called jazz rock or jazz fusion or more contemporary jazz because I found that rhythmically and, and color-wise was more interesting. So with all my respect and uh, admiration for people like Charlie Parker and, you know, the bebop and all this, uh, I never felt attracted to, to that. I felt attracted to jazz from Miles Davis, 1960s onwards. And so I, I started with, with jazz and, and, well, there was this thing that um, after um, quite a few years of um, huge tyranny there in Equatorial Guinea, um, my father, there was a military coup in 1979. And so then my father was or Spain was called back to go there and try to organize things. And actually my father was called back. So then I had the chance to visit him and spend a few months. So then I started studying some African music. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, uh, I got in contact with a few flamenco musicians who wanted to do things, uh, combining some jazz. So then... I found myself playing bass before Paco Lucia came out with his famous electric sextet. I was playing bass uh, with this flamenco uh, flamenco group, and uh, so yeah, I found that I learned some flamenco and I was very interested. I learned some African music, 
I I went to Morocco several times. I so I started collecting material at a time that was very difficult to collect non-Western material uh, in in audio, and uh, so it was a time how I I managed to get to Berkeley is a long story, but I got there and I I already had this background of non-Western music inside of me from my upbringing to all those years. And, and well, Archie was influenced by African music. So was Aaron Samuel of Chicago sometimes. So, you know, I found myself, whether I liked it or not, or I wanted it or not, uh, listening to music that in one way or another had non-Western influences. But we're still not in India. And it seems like Karnataka really uh, made a very big influence more than any other music, am I right? Yeah, yeah. So, but all all this is kind of and and kind of sowing the field in a way. Mm -hmm. So uh, I moved to to Amsterdam, and just after a few days, uh, it's a long story how we met. But I met the the this amazing singer Jana Vijaprakas mm -hmm. and a percussionist Angie Ravi, and I saw this concert, and I was it was over two hours long, and it was only voice. And this instrument that I didn't know how it was called at the time, it's called the Miridangam. Mm -hmm. And I could not believe that they could hold my attention with such an intensity for two hours. So then I went immediately to them and I said, I need to take lessons with you. I need to know what you're doing here because this is amazing. So they were staying for a few weeks doing some projects. I started there and then I started just going to Bangalore staying with my teachers and just just going to every rehearsal, every concert she gave, tour. So I, I just really dived into the Indian life. And for months, I wouldn't see a white person. So I started eating with my hands and I started doing everything very Indian. So... Um, Now, Rafael, for our uh, listeners, uh, let's a little bit clarify. Like in India, there are two big systems, the Hindustani in the north and the Karnataka in the south. I have been involved a lot in the Hindustani. I've been studying Bhakavach and Tabla, and there's the Chati, there's the Samtali Kali with the Angas and the Lyas. Could you lay out for us what's the difference in your opinion, about the Hindustani and the Karnataka rhythm system? How do they approach rhythm? Similar, different, the same? I think the, um, we have the main factor here, rhythmically, is the fact that in South Indian music, you have a tala keeper. You have someone who is peacefully keeping the tala for all musicians. So that somehow is... In a way, it's like having a conductor. Not really, because a conductor is really guiding you, whereas the tala keeper is just keeping the tala and it's like a visual metronome, right? So that has enabled the role of the percussion to develop not as a, as a mattress to the melody, which is more the case in Hindustani music or in most non-Western uh, cultures, but has a, a similar role there really interweaving polyrhythms and polypulses continuously because uh, the this, this singer or whoever the, the melodic instrument is, 
doesn't really need to have an uh, an audio of how the talas should sound like. Doesn't really need to have a pattern that keeps repeating with variations, like in Hindustani, you find more variations than in other cultures. Uh, but in a way, uh, the, the lack of having to fulfill a role for someone else enables the, the percussion to really go absolutely crazy and, and develop things that are really going completely against what the voice is doing. The voice has to say one instrument of the violin and, you know, and they're not going to be freaking out because it's like, oh, I don't know where the tala is because if, if that person gets lost, it's just going to look at the tala keeper and it's going to say, okay, we're here. So I can pick up if I get lost. So I think that that is what has made the bigger difference. And then everything, the development in both cultures kind of derive from there. Okay. Why Carnatic music has gone uh, to the extremes of being a very complex uh, rhythmical system and is far more complex than Hindustani or any other non non western culture in in the world so and i think is due to that fact that you don't need to be helping anyone to recognize atala you have a visual reference so then the percussion is free to elaborate phrasing and polyrhythms you do have um tala keeping like you know the hand signs also in a tabla solo or in a pakaba solo many times but not as extensive as in the Carnatic music. Now, before we go on to talk, maybe for our listeners, I'm gonna play the first uh, thing you have sent me. And actually, uh, the, you have to explain a little bit what is Srangang Tong. <laughs> what is the name, Srangang Tong? Uh, actually, that, that was a, a project uh, of um, the Amsterdam Percussion Group. And they wanted, they they gave a commission to different composers to write mm -hmm. pieces with uh, different influences that happened in Suriname. So, you know, you know, Suriname is a former uh, Dutch colony. So then they wanted to have a composer who uh, would write something with Indonesian influences. Also, there is a big Indian influence in Suriname, uh, Chinese. So then they had different pieces. So then... Uh, Srenan Tongo was, uh, is actually Papiamento, the language is spoken in, in Suriname, and, mm. uh, and it means all the languages. Ah, okay. So let's listen to all the languages, okay? That's 
Ranang Tongo from Rafael Reina for four classical percussionists and two Indian masters, right? Did you write this out on score all? Yeah, I did. That that part, yeah, for the for the Carnatic percussionists, I wrote everything down. And uh, for the the singer, it's, uh, it was my teacher. Um, that part is completely write, written out. Other parts are kind of, I give her some ideas of what I want. I, I just give her some freedom. But this part is completely written out. Yeah. What's the interesting thing in your music, uh, we will have more uh, um, examples from your music, is that, well, here is our voice as we speak. It's the recitative side, yeah? It goes like free, and then it's a pause, and then long, and then short. And then there is this, you know, thing where it's just uh, an ongoing pause. And you're playing very much back and forth between these two, right? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. <laughs> So now you have also composed three operas. I've composed two orchestral suites. I've never touched an opera yet. How did this come about? Well, uh, two operas. I mean, for orchestra, I've written only one opera. It was uh, Barcelona Orchestra and Choir. And I've I written two other pieces for orchestra, but um, not, not for the opera. Uh, for the opera, it was it was more like a, a big chamber ensemble. Um, well, how it came about, the the there were two actually in 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 collaboration with uh, with Germany, and it was like more what you could say falls in between music theater and opera. Okay, so in the sense that you had actors and dancers on a stage, which is pretty much the way opera is done in South India. In South India, they mm -hmm. have really long operas. So then all the musicians sit, including the singers, sit uh, on one side. And then you have actors that sometimes talk, but it's very visual. It's kind of, it's a bit like um, dance theater in a way maybe not as sophisticated as dance theater has been developed in the West, but sometimes they talk, but most of the time it's visual. So uh, what we did, I, I got together with this, um, this theater director uh, who I met in Cologne. Her name is Petra Weimar. And at the time uh, when we first met in, in Cologne, uh, well, she was heavily involved with, contemporary theater and stuff and, and she thought why don't we do something that is not a typical music theater which is like the music just in the background and people talking and it's not a typical opera with the singers whoa mm. and I said well I'm all for it because I'm not really so keen on the operistic approach of voice um, I particularly prefer kind of other coloraturas like black voice or Indian voice rather than uh, white voice in general. I, and um, so, yeah, the first idea was based on, on this uh, stories he had was about Adolf Welfli. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, probably it's more known in Germany, in the German world. So we created something that was really, uh, really very interesting, very, <laughs> very interesting stuff. 
So yeah, there was a, a DVD that came out of that. And years later, through my teacher, uh, with my teacher, we she wanted to do something based on the Bhagavad Gita, which mm. is one of the cornerstones of uh, Hindu philosophy. So when we were getting ready and ready to um, to apply for money and funds and all this stuff, um, then my teacher died suddenly. So then we were left with a great idea, but it was a bit too big for us. Then what we did uh, is we started researching different angles to the Bhagavad Gita, and we spent a whole summer in India talk, talking to from Bollywood producers <laughs> to uh, to uh, high priests who knew a lot about the Bhagavad Gita and a lot of things in between, just to get different versions, different visions on the on the theme. So then we kind of decided, okay, we're gonna take five of the main pillars of the Gita and we're gonna put it in the context of uh, someone who doesn't really know what to do with his life and he goes to India because okay, India's is the place of his spirituality. And then it's this very abstract theme because there he finds uh, Hermann Hesse living in India somehow, but it's not really living. It's kind of in a dream world. So it's, it's all very um, oniric, if you want. It's, it's very, very interesting. So then we take uh, like several things of our kind of things that we are more used to. And then we try to adapt these five main cornerstones of the Bhagavad Gita to situations, but create a whole narrative that makes sense, you know, like make different uh, sketches. Okay, so, the, the piece uh, of Hesse India that you sent me, uh, is this a cornerstone too, or what could you say to that? I don't know, I sent you three, so I don't know which one. Okay, let's listen first, then we know what it is, okay? The search for true wisdom 
Hesse India, composed by Rafael Reina. That's a very, very uh, curious uh, tune. You know, who is the female voice in that? Uh, it's, it's fantastic. She's actually more of a jazz singer, and she's also teaching in my uh, in the program I, I build for the conservatory in Amsterdam. Uh, her name is Christina Fuchs. She's actually uh, from Switzerland, and mm. she uh, actually study in India with a singer and she studied my program for three years and she has done a lot of contemporary music and but she has this perfect pitch and what I really like is that she didn't sing with this vibrato so she could really sing more the the Indian or ornamentation that's called gamakas so um yeah, and um, so she could see what I wrote, yes. <laughs> right. The, the question uh, that I had before, is this one of the cornerstones of the Bhagavad Gita? Actually, what? this yeah. is possibly the most important. According to Gandhi, uh, this part corresponds in a way, and the lyrics have been written by my wife, who is uh, actually Scottish, and she wrote this, and is the, the this part is called Delusion. Mm. And Delusion is the state where uh, um, a lot of people get a fall after, yeah, you can say delusion, disappointment. Basically, uh, it's, it's a very Indian philosophical thing. You know, you have to do things with care, but without expecting any fruits to your action. And that's part of the Dharma. You know, you need to do things. You have to do things. But don't expect. And in the West, we always attach expectations to whatever we do. And if those expectations don't come out, then we feel deflated. We feel in delusion. And then when we feel like that, then it's like, you know, we just try to grab onto whatever to get you out of that state. That's when many people fall into, you know, abuse of alcohol, drugs, false gurus, you name it. So... um yeah, so that's it, that's uh, one of the cornerstones, yeah. That's very interesting because when I was 15, I was actually the first time hitchhiking to India. And in my pocket was the Bhagavad Gita, <laughs> reading about, you know, doing the thing but not being attached to the outcome. So this is very beautiful music. Now, I'm very interested in one thing. You said a sentence that goes like this. The large variety of rhythmic devices used in Karnataka music is potentially most universal. Do you Would, would you say uh, the Karnatic elements uh, in rhythm that you took, are they archetypes? Are they universal? Explain this to us, please. Okay, yeah. Because I, I was a composer uh, and not an ethnomusicologist, 
uh, I wasn't really interested in how, uh, what it is that is done in most concerts in Carnatic music, but I was interested more in the architecture. What what are the elements that happen here, and what and luckily Jana Vidyaprakas and B.C. Manjunath, who uh, recorded with the Amsterdam Percussion Group, and Angie Ravi were people who were really into elements that up until a few years ago were considered like things that all musicians should study, but it's more like an academic study that you shouldn't really use for concerts. That was like the general idea. So then to hear one of these elements, uh, you might hear one out of 50 concerts, one piece for like three minutes. So I'm not saying that the rest, I wasn't interested, but let's say that 50% of what you can hear in a, in a Carnatic music concert wasn't elements that I consider could really help me with my composition or to, uh, to be able to come up with a whole pe- pedagogical method that would help, uh, well, basically what I teach at the conservatory, classical performers to improve the rhythmical uh, skills in order to perform contemporary music, mm-hmm. or composers and improvisers to think more rhythmically, not rhythm as something that is numbers against numbers, which is something that is like we have 13 and a half against 11 and three quarters, uh, you know, getting away from the this kind of new complexity. So while keeping the complexity, having those elements in Carnatic music that enable the musician to practice it. Okay. So, and- uh, so yeah, so then I, I got really deep into elements that were barely used in Carnatic music. But the funny thing is like now it's created a boomerang effect. So then because I published the book and the book got to India through those people who were doing those sort of things. Now there is a whole festival dedicated to innovation in Madras. And there are many, many musicians in Bangalore as well who are just say, okay, we can do this. Let's do this. This is great. So now there is much more uh, integration of, of this more complex material. So that's, it took a while for, for us, for my teachers and me to, to find this common ground. Because when they were teaching me things, I was like, well, you know, but this in, in Western music, we already have it in this way or another. What I'm interested is in what you have that we don't have. And, and there, you know, after the second visit, then it's like we start to really find this common ground. And then they start just kind of throwing things there. It's like, hey, what a second, what you just did? Oh, and then all of a sudden they just did something that opened a huge window. And I was able to restructure that to create a methodology by which musicians could practice it and then face a piece by Lachiman or Stohausen or Elliot Carter or whatever. Cool. And that's what you do in your educational programs, right? Uh, before we do that, because you have so uh, much great music here, I want to I want to play a poet in New York, which is done by a text of the Spanish poet Garcia Lorca that you obviously know. Yes. Okay, so let's listen to that. La luz de sepultada 
con cadenas y ruidos. En un impúdico reto de ciencia sin raíces. En los barrios hay gentes Vacilan insomnes. Como recién salidas de un naufragio de sangre. multiplicaciones hay una gota de sangre de pato debajo de las divisiones hay una gota de sangre de marinero debajo de las humas un río de sangre tierna un río que viene cantando los dormitorios de los arrabales. Plata, cemento o brisa, el alba mentira de Nueva York. Existen las montañas, lo sé, los anteojos para la sabiduría, lo sé. Pero yo no he venido a ver el cielo para ver la turbia sangre, sangre, que lleva las máquinas a las cataratas y el espíritu a la lengua de la cobra. Todos los días se matan en Nueva York cuatro millones de patos. de cerdos, dos mil palomas para el gusto de los agonizantes, un millón de vacas, un millón de corderos, dos millones de gallos que dejan los cielos hechos añicos. Vale sollozar, afilando la navaja, o asesinar a los perros en las alucinantes cacerías. Resistir en la madrugada los interminables trenes de leche. Los interminables trenes de sangre y los trenes de rosas maniatadas
palomas y los cerdos y los corderos ponen sus gotas de sangre debajo de las multiplicaciones y los terribles alaridos de las vacas estrujadas llenan de dolor el valle donde el agua se emborracha con aceite. Poets in New York, composed by Raphael Reiner. It's a piece for four percussionists and boys for the Amsterdam Percussion Group. What I really find fascinating is that there is a meter tangible, then it dissolves, and then you have just a statement of the drum again, and it gives in the meter, goes back and forth. That's I find this in your music very typical, and I like it a lot, I have to say. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Now, a very personal question. You have a lot of students, and what would you give them? You have done what you wanted to do all your life. You know, you pursued your desire. You found out what uh, was in India, and you went to the Bhagavad Gita and so on. What would you tell them? a secret of your life that could help their lives? I did everything because I wanted to do it without expecting anything. I never expected I could make a living uh, as a composer. I never expected I could create a program that would be so successful. And uh, so actually the name of the program has changed. So I used to be called Contemporary Music Through Non-Western Techniques. Now we have a, a kind of bachelor's program that is called Advanced Rhythm and a, a master's program that is called Applications of Carnatic Rhythm towards the Music. So maybe you took it that from an old, uh, old um, uh, CV of mine. Um, I think basically all my life, uh, I just wanted to, I just went for what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I never thought, how this is going to have economic consequences in my life. I just went for it. I just, and I believed in what I was doing. And then most of it happened that gave me my bread, so to speak. So there were times that wouldn't give me that. And then I I would need to resort to other things. So, okay. So occasionally I had to do other things, but I would say 80% of what I've done in my life is what I wanted to do without thinking, oh, I'm breaking ground, or without thinking this is amazing. It's just like, I like this. I just want to do this. And I find this fascinating. I'm just going to go for it. So I think in a way, I was already living before I met the Bhagavad Gita, that idea that, okay, you do things because you really care. And if it happens, happens. If it doesn't happen, doesn't happen. But the time that you were doing it, was great. So when I was going to India and spending months there, I was just enjoying every minute of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. someone at that time would have told me that years later I would have a PhD and I was about to start a postdoctoral research and uh, and I would have triggered partly a revolution in Carnatic music. I would have said, come on, you got to be drunk, you know? <laughs> so... Um, I think it's a very important lesson for anyone who's learning because they're coming and learning 
And now it's the balance of keeping the fire. They come for, you know, hopefully with fire to see what they can, you know, learn. But then they also need to know, just follow that and don't expect anything. Let things unfold. And then we come back to the Bhagavad Gita, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So finally, get, let's go to the chaos part of Wölfli. Uh, explain this a little. Uh, how is uh, Wölfli a uh, journey into chaos? Well, that's a, that's a good question. We we established a parallel, and this this was more the theater part than, than me, but I just went with the music with it, because of Adolf. So you have Adolf Wölfli, who was someone uh, that was basically mentally deranged and he spent spent many years in a mental asylum and at the end he created this this kind of um painting and drawings and so then he went from a complete chaos because he even killed a couple couple of small girls without knowing it without realizing that he was uh he was killing anyone and while he was in this mental asylum, he just decided to be creative. So then we established an opposite parallel with Adolf Hitler, who wanted to be a painter and became the biggest distractor of at least the 20th century together with Stalin, right? So um, in a way, we established this parallel and out of the craziness of Adolf Welsley, Adolf Hitler comes out. So at one point you have mm. both characters uh, on stage, um, oh. yeah, doing quite crazy things. That was so let's listen to Wolfley and see what we can hear from that, right? Yes.
Wölfli, an operatic composition by Raphael Reiner, a co-production of Healing Theatre Cologne and the Interval Chamber Amsterdam that you have also co-founded, as I know. Wow, what a theme. Uh, you know, I didn't know that background. <laughs> it's, and, and again, we have that kind of uh, almost... Uh, like the norns, you know, the the the, the ones who uh, dictate the face, these drums coming in again, like you know, it's it's very deep. Thank you very much, Raphael, for you know sharing all these uh, things today with us. Any final thing you want to share with us? Any final thing? Oh, guess <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to, but <laughs> it's just a question. Um, I don't know. I think, um, yeah, uh, I'm just waiting to see if, if we get this postdoctoral thing, which is, uh, uh, actually we are eight researchers from seven different countries and different, uh, cultures. And we're going to try to do something, putting together, uh, trying to get together a, a new, uh, pedagogical approach that will really contemplate non-Western music you not know, as, as something that, okay, is this little bit here, this little bit there, you can learn djembe here or tabla there, but something that is taken more seriously in the Western academia. So we mm-hmm. have applied to the European Research Council. We're waiting for results for next year. And um, I just hope that uh, we can get the funds because it's a very ambitious project and we try to uh, get rid of this is this, this is that, but try to say, okay, this is music, and we should we should stop just looking at Western music as the only music that needs to be taught in the West. You know, it's, it's time to recognize, like, well, if we want globalization, uh, it's not only to sell Coca-Cola uh, to Africa. It's, uh, it needs to be a two-way, two-way, road in a way so ah yeah that's that's my immediate project somehow and that's yeah that's the only thing i want to absolutely great we certainly cross the finger for you to that you get these funds you know wonderful project you have put into um, the world can you let us know where people can find you on the net? Um, I think the easiest, if, if they they can Google my name and they'll probably find very easily uh, a link to the book or a link to what I teach at the, what we teach at the conservatory. We actually mm-hmm. six teachers now. Uh, because trying to remember, well, if someone remembers applications of Carnatic is the only thing they're going to find is either the name of the book or the name of the program so either my name or applications of Carnatic and that you know I will take them again Rafael thank you so much for the time it was very fascinating to hear your music hear the stories behind it and what you have created congratulations actually thanks a lot for inviting me to this I really appreciate it now, if you like our podcast and you have been fascinated by our talks and by the music we play, visit us at powerofrhythm.com forward slash podcast. 
you can leave a comment and if you like you can also leave a wish for someone you want me to talk to for now all the best have a great time and keep on growing